Hi, this is Len Elmore. You know, one of the things I've seen Duke do in the past in situations like this is try for the quick pass to half court and call a quick timeout so they can get in better shooting range. There's the pass to Leitner. Puts it up. Yes! And you're listening to The Bridge. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be a basketball player, lawyer, and sports broadcaster? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 108 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, April 25th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Putting together the regular season schedule for the National Football League seems like a daunting task, to say the least, even after 50-plus years worth to go off of. The factors to have to contend with extend far and wide, so much so that even concert schedules can come into play. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of... Sports news, red like real news. The release day of the NFL schedule is celebrated by many football fans as its own holiday, with the process of running down how teams will fare in each game consuming that week for fans and sports radio. The finished product will always have a handful of head scratchers. But overall, the men, women, and computers in charge of building the 256-game, 17-week schedule do their best to appease the masses in the unenviable position that they're in. There's the usual hurdles of a rotating schedule that sees a team play each of the other 31 at least once in a four-year period. 
And what division, aside from a team's own, holds many of those games? On top of that, schedulers also are faced with dealing with the outside factors during the regular season, including concerts and events at NFL stadiums and other occurrences that might compete with games. Some fields and stadiums hold up better than others, but a day or two is usually given to clean up the messes left behind. While many stadiums that were built to accommodate NFL teams would most likely lean toward their sports games over other events, some names hold precedent over America's assumed favorite sport. This year's culprit, Edward Christopher Sheeran. One of the most popular music artists in the world, Ed begins his North American tour in August through November, rocking football and baseball stadiums along the way. The end result of that tour for nine teams in the National Football League is less than perfect. The Lions, Patriots, Giants and Jets, Titans, Chiefs, Vikings, Cowboys and Falcons will all find themselves away from home the day after Mr. Sheeran's Saturday night performances. We'll even feel the effects right away in week one, when fans are subjected to the Jets and Lions for the Monday night football opener to accommodate Ed's show at Ford Field in Detroit that weekend. That wasn't even the worst reason for cancellations in Detroit. The city was unable to win a bid to host this year's draft because of a conflict with a robotics convention. Hundreds of computers are tasked with putting together millions of possible schedules for schedule makers to sift through and pick the best one. On the plus side, at least those that flock to Mercedes-Benz Stadium for the Saturday concert during Week 10 in Atlanta can actually treat themselves to the facilities Chick-fil-A. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. And we found love right where we are. Let's take a quick break to listen to some Ed Sheeran. When we come back, we'll talk to a former college legend, ABA and NBA player, assistant DA and current hoops broadcaster about the many highlights from his life and career. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail and text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know, who is your favorite sports broadcaster and why? Now to this week's guest in Len Elmore. He's a Maryland Hoops legend, played in the ABA for two years and the NBA for eight, then became a lawyer after his playing days and transitioned into the world of sports broadcasting where you can hear and see him today. Len is also the head of or part of several different organizations and groups and uses his voice on many different platforms, not only to broadcast basketball games. I've always enjoyed hearing Len's commentary, most notably during the NCAA tournament, and getting to hear some of his stories firsthand was definitely a privilege, including his appearance on ACC Today on Sirius XM's ACC Radio several weeks back. 
Speaking of, we also didn't touch on the Commission of College Basketball's report that was released Wednesday morning, mainly because we did this interview on Tuesday night, but also because Len talked about that on the ACC This Morning show. So to give a shameless plug, you can hear his thoughts on SiriusXM On Demand about that. We'll talk about when he knew he wanted to pursue basketball into college and beyond, getting his hoop start in New York, takes from his playing days at Maryland, the process of getting drafted into the ABA and his career there and in the NBA, fulfilling his dream of becoming a lawyer, taking his talents behind the microphone, and some of the highlights from that aspect of his life. You can follow Len on Twitter. He's at Len Elmore. That's L-E-N-E-L-M-O-R-E. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Len Elmore. He is a Maryland Hoops legend, former NBA and ABA player, a lawyer, broadcaster, several other titles in between as well. Len, thanks so much for taking some time to chat on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Just, uh, Enjoying life and, uh, you know, watching a little NBA playoff basketball. Nothing wrong with either of those things. And as you mentioned, getting to enjoy some of the Miami life instead of the uh, hustle and bustle that might come with New York City, which is somewhere I wanted to get started by turning back the clocks a little bit with you. And I'm sure some of these questions will be repetitive, but I think they sometimes bear repeating. I know you won a city championship with Power Memorial Academy and at one time were the number one team in the nation in 1970. Was that what allowed you to know that you wanted to pursue basketball at the next level? Was that during high school? Did that evolve during your time there? How did you really know that you wanted to pursue hoops? Well, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the competitive nature of, of sports. Uh, you know, I had played baseball and was actually a pretty good baseball player until I was about 15 and I really started to shoot up. And that's when I began to play basketball um, as a sophomore. Prior to that, I had never really played organized basketball, just a little bit in the playground, three on three, half court. But uh, I was playing uh, a little bit of that in junior high school in the ninth grade. And I had a PE teacher who saw me kind of head and shoulders above my classmates and you know, the way I looked running back and forth, I looked like Chief from Cuckoo's Nest. So uh, he figured that I might have a, a little bit of desire to play basketball, but I was still uh, a, an avid baseball player. But he said, don't you want to play a game where everybody is about your size and playing on my insecurities? I said, sure, why not? So we took a drive over to Power Memorial. I was in Queens at the time. We drove over the bridge, went to Power, which is in Manhattan. And um, had a bunch of guys ready to play. This was kind of a tryout. And I, I distinctly remember uh, center court, jump ball. Uh, the official tosses up the ball. Guys tip it and they take off. And I'm still standing at half court because I'm trying to figure out which way to run. Because I had never played full court basketball before. But having said that, it took a while for me to really grasp uh, the game uh, played in the Rucker tournament between my sophomore and junior year. Um, got better junior year. I was all city. Obviously, senior year, I was a high school All-American. We won the, the championship. And again, it came down to just having an opportunity to play against some of the best players in the country on a high school level, even on a pro level in the Rucker tournament and kind of hone your skills there. I was a pretty fast learner, pretty good athlete. I was going to say... Hoops in New York City 
doesn't maybe have the lore that it once did, but in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, whether it was in school or the streetball community, basketball was incredibly popular. Maybe not at the professional level of superstars in the NBA, but sometimes there were more popular players playing at your local corner court than there might be playing in the NBA. How much did that help you as far as growing as a player, even improving your game, getting to be surrounded in that atmosphere of New York City basketball? Well, well, that's the best way to learn, to play against the best, take your lumps. Um, You know, I was embarrassed more than once, believe me, and particularly playing in the Rucker against, you know, some of the great legendary players, as well as some of the great guys who went on to become professionals. But you learn your lesson and, you know, you may get embarrassed today and the next day you're the one who does the embarrassing. And then it really came down to just developing a style, developing a confidence and you know, overcoming uh, your, your weaknesses and you know, not to say I was a complete player by the time I got to college, but I still got better and better every day from, you know, the age of 15 uh, through 18. So it turned out to be a, a great learning experience. And when I look back on it and, and remember all of the guys that I played against, the legends that are out there, I'm really blessed that I've played in that era. Any pressure of having to fill the shoes of, I guess, what people would call the most famous person <laughs> from your high school? Oh, uh, well, look, Lou Alcindor was five years ahead of me. He was gone. He had obviously distinguished himself not only in high school, but uh, on the college level and was in the pros by the time I graduated from power. But I always tell the story that, you know, there was a lot of um, advanced publicity about another big man coming into power, uh, trying to dominate, uh, not understanding that I had never played basketball before. So all that talk happened uh, on the first day of practice, and it stopped on the second day. (laughs) That led to you going to Maryland, and the accolades are well-known, three-time All-ACC player and an All-American as a senior, and you still lead the rebounding categories as far as total rebounds and rebounding average for the Terps. Played under lefty as well, and we're in an era of basketball with him that a lot of Maryland fans who are old enough to remember assuredly still look back fondly on, especially when the school was still in the ACC. Is there something that you took from your time at Maryland, whether it was on the court or off the court, that was able to help you pursue a professional career? Well, I mean, look, I learned an awful lot. Again, playing in the competitive ACC, especially back then when the, uh, the, the number of teams were a lot smaller, um, the competition was a lot steeper, you didn't have one and done. So you had players who went on to be seniors and very developed, uh, very skilled players. And to be able to compete in that environment, uh, the intensity of that environment. And remember, if you look at the context, in those days, the ACC was a one-bid conference. And so particularly in my senior year, where we were ranked in the top three, the top four throughout the season, uh, with UCLA and NC State, uh, the other two teams that were there. And we didn't even get a chance to go to the NCAA tournament that senior year, even though we were one of the best teams in the nation because NC State was number one. We lost to them in the ACC tournament in overtime. And here we are prevented from going to the NCAA tournament. And they ultimately won. 
And the only solace we could get from that was when they were asked who was the best team they played against, they said, of course, Maryland. But uh, that was, you know, not enough, obviously, to assuage the pain. But the bottom line is that taking all of those skills and that competitiveness throughout from sophomore year to senior year, because freshmen weren't eligible back in those days, um, and playing against great players certainly helped prepare me to be uh, be a professional. And, and honestly, I didn't even think that I would be a professional until my sophomore year um, playing in the NIT where, that we won. Uh, and I had a, uh, a triple-double, not that it was a big deal back then, but I, had about, I think I had 16 points, uh, 15 rebounds, and 11 blocks. And suddenly some of the New York Knicks were watching that game because they played <laughs> in Madison Square Garden. And, you know, a couple of them pulled me to the side and said, you know, you, you're going to be a pretty good pro if you keep working. And that was the first time I really – acknowledge the fact that maybe I did have what it took to become a pro player ultimately. I didn't even win the NI, uh, the MVP, by the way. <laughs> you know, my teammate Tom McMillan won it, even though we had uh, similar numbers. But, you know, that didn't phase me any. And I was happy for Tom. But, you know, today it probably would have been a great argument as to who should have won, right. won well, that MVP. There's been great players to come through the ACC in that time period. And based on how long the coaches now have been with their respective programs, Coach K and Jim Beheim and Dean Smith there for as long as he was, as someone who was named part of the 50th anniversary, 50 greatest players in ACC history, are you sort of a, a vocal remembrance of that time period to let these younger guys know like, hey, I mean, we brought it to the court too. Don't forget about us. Yeah, I mean, you do that, but just like we – were you know my peers uh in our day we'd look back on the former acc players and acknowledge them and, and give them a great deal of respect but certainly in our minds we thought we were better and of course these kids today obviously believe that they were better i can say that you know when you look at today's player many of them are probably more athletic because of not only evolution but also because of training capabilities uh but i do think as far as a grasp of the game is concerned and understanding how to play the game, I think we still, our era in the 70s was still one of those uh, eras that um, you could isolate from others in the grasp of how to play basketball, the combination of athleticism as well as playing team ball, playing vertically as well as horizontally, if you know what I mean. Um, I think as an announcer and having broadcast for almost 30 years, I think that era still. Uh, takes a backseat to none with regard to the combination of the two. Since the NFL draft is on Thursday, to piggyback off that slightly, when you were going to get drafted or could come into a professional league, there was the chance to go into the NBA or into the ABA, depending on who selected you. You were a first-round pick in both. What was the decision-making like for what your next step would be professionally? If there was a team maybe that you had on your mind, if there was a league in general, how did that process work for you when you made it? Well, it wasn't nearly as intense as it is today. I mean, you know, after playing uh, as a senior, um, then instead of having combines, there were actual tournaments that you played in. The NABC, the National Association of Basketball Coaches, had a big tournament, I believe, in Chicago. And then the Pizza Hut-sponsored classic in Las Vegas. And then there was a tournament out in Hawaii. And so you played in all three of those tournaments. The pro scouts were all there. 
you got interviewed, you got measured. Um, you know, they, it, they did a lot of what they do in the combine today, except it was in uh, practice and game uh, un- under those types of um, un- under those types of the scrutiny. And so, really, it was one of those things where as, after it was done, you certainly guessed as to where you might be drafted, particularly the NBA. You really didn't think about the ABA draft because their rules changed almost on a daily basis with right. regards to the draft because they were focused more on survival. But when it finally came down to it, uh, I was actually visiting my girlfriend who was studying over in France. She's now my wife, but I went to visit her and I had no idea who I was drafted by until uh, in the bed and breakfast we stayed in. I got an irate knock on my door from the owner of the bed and breakfast saying I had a call from the United States that woke everybody up. And I was told that I was drafted by the Washington Bullets. Um, and then a couple of days later, I was told that I was also uh, picked by the Indiana Pacers. And it really came down to money and security. I, I think the NBA during that time was a, a little more arrogant in some ways. The Bullets made a, an offer of three years, two of them, only two of them guaranteed for half the money. The Pacers made an offer of six years at all guaranteed money. I uh, did some research to make sure that the Pacers were the type of team with a solvency that would last uh, in the event that there was some kind of incorporation or merger into the NBA, that they weren't one of those teams that uh, was operating on fumes. And so having the good fortune of having those choices, I made the choice for the Pacers because of the security and, um, recognize that it was a good choice down the road because only four teams in the ABA were incorporated into the NBA two years later. And one of them happened to be the Indiana Pacers. So I kind of never skipped a beat from that standpoint. It's pretty lucky. Can you still throw down some French if asked, or has that sort of passed things by? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's passed by. <laughs> Dealing uh, in the switch, in a sense, from the ABA into the NBA, was there any adjustment to that, whether that was the competition side of things or maybe how the lifestyle was? Were there any challenges along the way when that ended up happening a couple years into your career? Well, the unfortunate part about it was when the actual changeover happened in 1976, I had just come off a year prior to that where I averaged almost 15 points a game and and almost 11 rebounds a game in the ABA. And uh, in training camp in that first year that we were going to be in the NBA, I tore up my knee. And so I, except for six games, when I tried to come back uh, wearing a huge brace uh, that made it almost impossible to play, and I finally gave it up. Um, save those, save for those six games, I really didn't play in that first year, and so, you know, I had to be a very unsatisfied observer. It wasn't until the following year that I made the transition, but now I was kind of injured good, so to speak, uh, and the transition was a little more difficult not only because of the style of play, but because you're also overcoming an injury that kept you out for a year. Um, I, I thought I did pretty well coming back. I wasn't a starter any longer. I averaged about seven, eight points a game, rebounded pretty well. But, you know, once you're damaged goods uh, in professional sports, for the most part, um, you know, you never really get much of a chance to come back and, and show exactly who you are. You don't get the minutes. And it wasn't uh, for a long time until I got to uh, – 
the New Jersey Nets that I became a starter again. But uh, but as far as the transition was concerned, it's still basketball. Um, Three-point shot wasn't necessarily uh, incorporated until a few years later, but I never took a three anyway, so it didn't affect my game much at all. Did getting to come home first with the New Jersey Nets and then eventually playing for the Knicks mean a lot to you in that time period of your career? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it meant more in retrospect than it did at the time. I mean, one of the things that made it important was, again, you know, my uh, my wife, who back then was my girlfriend, had gone to business school in Phoenix, Arizona, and I spent the summer there. She was working in Chicago uh, for a major bank, and uh, I was playing for the Milwaukee Bucks. But then during that year, that second year that I went to training camp for the Bucks, she got transferred to New York. And so, you know, we kind of thought this might be the end of it. And then suddenly, for whatever reason, I got traded to New Jersey. And of course, you know, we looked at that as serendipity and said, okay, well, you know, we might as well stay together. But it was it was a great um, opportunity for me because I got traded to a New Jersey Nets team that was rebuilding. Larry Brown was at the helm and, you know, a bunch of ACC guys uh, became really good friends of mine, Mike Jeminski, uh, Michael Corrin, along with guys like Ray Williams, um, and then, of course, we had the two Maryland stars, Buck Williams and Albert King, you know, really all rookies playing on that team. And here I was, an eight-year player as the elder statesman. I was able to come into that team. Uh, first game, I had 14 and 11, and I became a starter after that for Larry Brown and you know, really was a guy who could help these young players get better. And from a 2-14 and 14 start, we wound up winning about 42, 43 games that year and made the playoffs because of the growth in, in Albert and Buck and, um, you know, some of the other guys that are on that team. I mean, a bunch of retreads like myself, uh, Clarence Footswalker, Ray Williams, uh, along with the young players that I mentioned, and, you know, some really athletic guys like James Bailey from Rutgers. Uh, you know, the combination of, of the wisdom as well as the youth and the exuberance, you know, really served the New Jersey Nets well that particular year. And by the way, you know, I still maintain that the best NBA coach I ever played for was Larry Brown, who was uh, outstanding at teaching fundamentals, at giving guys an opportunity to work on what it is you would work on in a game, no more, no less, and put you in a terrific position to succeed. And so even now I look at coaches and I use Larry as a barometer uh, but I wish to compare, uh, you know, these coaches and, and to see who prepares their guys to do exactly that, because I think that's the essence of coaching. To put a cap on the NBA portion of things based on when you played and some of the experience you were able to have over an eight year career. Do you have a water cooler or party story that you tell from your playing days? One of the first things that sort of pops out to you when it comes to, hey, tell me a story of what it was like to play in either the ABA or the NBA. I mean, I, there are a lot of stories, um, you know, nothing crazy. Um, you know, I remember travel stories where, you know, in the ABA, we'd play a game um, in the evening in Denver, but because of the scheduling and the need for teams to play home games and to make money, et cetera, et cetera. We wound up playing an afternoon game in New York 
Uh, so, you know, that meant getting up and taking like a 5.30 a.m. flight to New York and maybe getting two hours of sleep before playing. And obviously you knew what the outcome of that game was and playing the Nets, uh, the, the New York Nets at the time. Um, playing with guys when I got to the NBA, playing with guys like um, uh, Daryl Dawkins, who was, you know, his career was uh, a, a volume of water, water cooler stories. Uh, but, you know, he was, uh, he was probably the clown prince of the game and still had some pretty good skills as well as a player. But every day was a fun game to, a fun day to come to work. Um, and then playing for the uh, New York Knicks, uh, playing with a guy like Bernard King, who was one of the most intense players, intense professionals I've ever played with, who, you know, was so focused. Uh, you know, he was probably... That's why he was so good because of that focus. And, you know, that team had good camaraderie as well. We lost to the Celtics in, um, in, in the Eastern Conference semifinals in seven games. But the one thing I, I talk about that was because of the pain that I was suffering with the knees and the fact that I was getting to be an older player and I wasn't getting as much time, I decided the summer prior to that year that I was going to go to law school. So, I took the courses to take the LSATs and did pretty well there. Uh, got accepted to Harvard Law School, and lo and behold, we're playing the Celtics in the uh, playoffs. And, and I had a chance to take the T over from Boston over to Cambridge to kind of look around campus, walk in the library, and get a feel for you know the law school and making a decision. And I just decided that was going to be my last year since I was accepted. I had a chance to defer, but instead of deferring, I was going to school next year. And that kind of was, uh, you know, turning the page onto a new chapter in life. Yes, quite the interesting switch of careers. Usually after retirement, an NBA player might either spend time with their family or open a business or try to find the next venture. But not often do the players end up going to law school and Harvard at that. I'm sure that that was something that was fueled inside you from a young age or at some point became something that you knew you wanted to pursue. When did you know that law school would be something to go after? And, and what were the early years like for you getting into the practice of that? Well, well, first of all, my dream of being a lawyer goes all the way back to, you know, about eight or nine growing up in New York city and uh, being somewhat, you know, socially conscious and, and certainly media interested i watched a lot of television and you know i you'd see the news and the civil rights struggle and then later on into my teen years obviously the the war in vietnam and you thought that the law was a way to have some impact as far as social change was concerned that you know the parade was gonna come walking down the street and rather than be a bystander i wanted to be in the parade for change and, and so you know i idolized tv shows like perry mason the district attorney um, and the defenders, things like that, because they always seem to do the right thing for, you know, the, the, for the downtrodden, if you will, for the voice, speak for the voiceless. And so ultimately, I still wanted to be a lawyer, even throughout my professional basketball career. I always like to say that basketball interrupted my pursuit of a legal career. Uh, but nevertheless, when the opportunity came, I was happy to be able to do that. And, um, you know, I got accepted. And when I went, it was a bit of a transition. There's no question about it. Um, you know, I had been out of school for 10 years and I was 
in school with a lot of young people who have just left college, still had their philosophical habits, if you will, the study habits and, you know, the ability to, to focus in class. And, you know, I had to redevelop that and it took a little bit of time, but nevertheless, I made the transition with glowing colors. I had great opportunities to, to work in the clinicals where I could represent tenants against landlords, or I could work for the Massachusetts Commission against discrimination and where I could be a, um, a public defender uh, as a uh, third year law student and go out and represent folks who couldn't afford uh, legal representation. So I got an opportunity to do a lot of things. Um, I got exposure to some great teachers, um, some of which, you know, you see on TV today, the Alan Dershowitz of the world and the Lawrence tribes and people of that nature. Um, I missed President Obama by about two years. That's <laughs> so right. Didn't have an opportunity to interact with him. I probably would have seen him on the basketball court in uh, in the old gym, Hemingway, uh, which I wasn't allowed to play in intermills. I was only allowed to coach. So. Why the switch from doing what you were then doing as a lawyer to sports broadcasting and getting back into professional basketball and then college basketball? Well, I mean, I don't know if I ever switched. I was actually offered the opportunity to be an announcer in my second year in law school. Uh, I was approached by uh, then the executive producer of ACC Games for Jefferson Pilot and Raycom, a guy by the name of Mike Berg. And um, in my second year, asked me, was I interested? I really not had uh, any type of training in television. I did a couple of radio games and maybe one TV game while I was uh, still in college. In fact, it was the year that I was injured and missed a season uh, back in 76 that I was able to get a little bit of experience. But, you know, I was offered that in my second year and, you know, I, I really liked it. Um, but, you know, I didn't do a whole lot of it after I got out of law school because I went to New York City and Kings County, which is Brooklyn, New York, became an assistant district attorney and for almost four, over four years, a little over four years, I was obviously working there. But the opportunity presented itself again. Um, you know, I started doing work for Jefferson Pilot more earnestly. I uh, recognized that on a district attorney's, assistant district attorney's salary, you know, I weren't going to be able to raise a family. We were living in Manhattan. My wife was working in banking. And we were going to start a family. But, you know, I needed to make more money. And as much as I love being in uh, public interest, I had to make enough money to, to raise a family. So you combine the television with changing over into the private sector. And, you know, that was the reason why I left uh, the DA's office. But television became fun. And, you know, I got to be pretty good at it and ultimately hired by CBS to do some games for them and then the NCAA tournament. And I guess the rest is history. Uh, I did take uh, five years off as a I became a sports agent. I, I got really um, involved in trying to help guys who had been defrauded, who had lost their money, who had lost their direction uh, with no help from the people who represented them. And because I had a law degree, I was asked to help a lot of guys. And I figured, okay, why don't I step into this business and see if I can affect some change? I mean, I recognize how important uh, these people were as athletes because of having been one myself, you know, I saw the potential that you could have in life even after the game was over. And these guys had so much going for them, so many resources. 
uh, but they weren't pointed in the right direction. I thought as their agent and as their career manager, you know, I could help them in many of the same ways that I was helped, you know, whether it's the focus on community responsibility or development of self-reliance where you don't depend on other people to do things for you, including watch your money. And, um, you know, I'm proud that several of my clients are, are still thriving right now. Uh, actually, most of my clients, the ones who stayed with me, are thriving right now. And, um, you know, I, I think that there was an important and, and, and vital aspect and time in my life where, you know, I can impart some knowledge to these guys and also have some impact on the industry. I stayed in for five years because, you know, it got to the point where there's so much money being paid and guys decided that, um, players decided that they would go with agents who would pay them to be their clients instead of going with uh, agents who could offer them uh, an opportunity to become self-reliant and community responsible. I got frustrated. I also said in order to be competitive, I'd have to be like those other agents, and I wasn't going to put my license or my reputation in jeopardy. And for anyone hoping that my follow-up question will be on the NCAA commission and what their decision will be coming out on Wednesday, Len will be speaking about that on radio. (laughs) So there's a shameless plug. Even though this comes out on Wednesday night, if you're doing SiriusXM on demand, he'll be able to tell you all about that there. So now you don't have to speak about it twice. Though maybe you could have gotten the X's and O's out of the way with me, and it would have been whatever needs to be deleted or moved around. We, we could have got the uh, the first draft out of the way here, but uh, we can say no, that. Many people know where I stand on reforms in, in college sports. Uh, the NCAA has made a lot of mistakes, but uh, they still – if committed the right way, if they were given uh, an exemption from Congress who should recognize the importance of collegiate basketball, intercollegiate sports themselves, and the impact on communities, on individual students, and, you know, the potential of it, you know, they'd give them an antitrust exemption to keep them from being uh, murdered by, uh, you know, a thousand cuts of litigation and, and give them an opportunity to do the right thing. But you know, the NCAA keeps making the mistakes that play into the narrative that they're the exploiters. And, um, you know, I think it's going to require an awful lot of change. And I'm hoping that the commission uh, would exercise some radical thought and, and make those kinds of changes that are necessary. It'll definitely be interesting. And Unfortunately, we don't have the definitive answer of any of the right. rulings from Wednesday, so we'll just say a, a belated stay tuned for all of that. To wrap up with you, since I was first introduced uh, to your voice on the NCAA tournament coverage with CBS for years and years, and thankfully it, it was great to hear it on the phone side of things. It sounds just as good as it does on TV, so you don't have to worry about that as well. (laughs) From all the games that you've been able to cover, and I don't want to pinpoint one specifically, but ask instead. I know you were at the Christian Leitner game-winning shot over Kentucky in the East Regional game, but is there a moment that stands out to you? It could be a game winner or just a game in general or an opportunity from your broadcasting career that really is something that you're proud of or are lucky enough to be a part of. Well, I mean, I think the, the seminal game is the one you just mentioned, the uh, Duke-Kentucky game. Um, and really, and to broaden it, the, 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 the ability to work with guys like Vern Lundquist or Gus Johnson particularly 
even though I, you know, I've had great partners throughout, you know, those, those have been the highlights. And, you know, obviously you have doing that game and sitting there with Vern and watching that game unfold and, and not really recognizing until the end that that would be a game for the ages. Um, you know, I, I think that there's no other game that I could point to to say that it could be anywhere close to that. Uh, and I've, you know, we've done some pretty good games. I mean, I've, I've seen the emergence of uh, Steph Curry with Davidson. Um, we saw that terrific comeback by UCLA against Gonzaga, where Adam Morrison had to break down and cry at the end. Uh, there's so many different opportunities that I've had throughout the years. And uh, you know, I'm just happy that I'm still able to do a few more games for a few more years. Uh, moving on to some other things right now, never wanted to sit still. I'll be teaching a sports management course at Columbia University come this fall, actually on a full-time basis to try it for a year and see how it works. But, you know, I'm never one to, to really sit still. So, um, you know, basketball is kind of slowly winding down for me. Uh, if that door starts to close, I'm going to open up a window or something. It's not, I'm not ready to stop. Yeah, it was hard to keep track of all the different things you've either been part of or are currently part of. But it's safe to say that your voice is continuing to be heard on many of the different platforms that you're currently a part of and can definitely be helpful in, in many ways to either current athletes, former athletes, or just the populace in general. So I have to ask, is, is there a favorite Gus Johnson call that he's had? I know he gets a little bit more animated than maybe Vern does, uh, <laughs> but is there one that maybe sticks out to you where he's he's gotten more than excited than he usually is? Well, as I said, if, if anybody wants to YouTube it, it was the game that uh, UCLA came back on Gonzaga and it was an unbelievable um, run that they had in the last minute or so. And uh, to describe that and also to see, you know, Adam Morrison break down, but to also recognize that they still had an opportunity to tie the game was really, you know, something that uh, I think got Gus really excited. And, uh, you know, he was probably at his best. And the only guy that you might think of fouling is Jeremy Pargo at 69%. They throw it to Morrison. He holds on. You don't want to foul Morrison. You make him get it over half court. You know you got to foul. And oh. a steal! Farmer! Inside! The freshman up! Oh, and they go in front! Romeo! Last chance to dance! Unbelievable! Oh, what a game! Unbelievable! What a game! UCLA! Left the door open for a miracle or occur. And they've got to put it in the hands of Morrison. Second free throw is good. Hollins comes into the game. He'll guard the ball. Pendergraft the inbounder. On any long pass, trying to get it to half court, you still want to go after the ball like you're a cornerback. And the court, Batista with the catch! Three seventy-one after being down by seven. 
I mentioned, you've seen so many of these shots get hit because you don't go after the ball aggressively. That time, Batista still makes the catch, but not in a good position. you got to go after the ball like you're a quarterback in football. UCLA very fortunate, but then again, they earned this one. Winning basket right here. Batista, kind of casual with the ball, gets it taken away, and then look at the vision by Farmar, finding Umba Amute. Presence of mind, you play the worst that you could play in the first half, go down 17, and you get a young team like this to show this kind of character and poise. And the flip side, you get a veteran team that falls apart at the end. Unbelievable. And that tells a story in what could be the final game of the career of Adam Morgan. Throughout the years that, that we worked together, hear him say things like rise and fire and things of that nature. I mean, it was just fun to sit next to him. He, um, I, was his, uh, I was his yang to his yin, if you will. And, uh, you know, for those seven or eight years, we had a terrific time. Has it been difficult at all to keep up with the game of college basketball just with some of the changes they've made on the court the quickness of the athletes from when you played or has that been something that just from being around the game so long it's easy to pick up on even with social media and and all the different things that are talked about now on the court and off the court with if the players should be paid and the outside noise you're still able to keep a firm grip on things I guess I could say. Yeah, no, I'm still in it. I mean, there's no question about it. You know, I've been fortunate to be able to do this in consecutive years, and so the evolution of the game hasn't sped up or passed me by. And, you know, I've been there step by step, you know, being able to critique a game and, and be critical when I have to, to applaud when I have certainly have to, and to offer suggestions going forward. So, you know, I've been, like I said, very fortunate to be a part of this great game, one that gave me so many opportunities as well. I always look forward to getting to hear you on a broadcast, whether it's Vern or Gus or whomever else uh, gets the joy of, of getting to chat during a game. It's it's great, not only for it being NCAA tournament time, but the broadcasting crew that CBS is and TBS and all the affiliates are usually able to put together for us is definitely a joy. And Len, I have to thank you very much for coming on and getting to chat about what you've been able to do throughout a very storied career on the basketball floor and outside of it. Great hearing some of your stories firsthand and continued success with the many, many projects that you're up to. And maybe we can reach back out again down the road just to update everybody on the different fun things that you're doing. But as I mentioned, can't wait to hear you again calling games and continued success with everything that you're up to. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for the opportunity, John. Thanks again to Len for coming on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe sports show that was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. 
This week, to celebrate this weekend's release of Avengers Infinity War, Joe will rank the 18 films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You can find Joe on Twitter at DukeMish, that's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or however you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. When Avengers Infinity War is released Friday, it will be the 19th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which started back in 2008 with its debut film, Iron Man. Since then, the MCU has made almost $15 billion at the box office and has, for the most part, been a critical success. But have you ever tried to rank them from worst to best? Trust me, I underestimated how difficult a task that would be. I don't hate any of these movies, so calling some of them the worst is a bit of an overstatement. But as a society, we usually deal in absolutes, so let's bring that into the film room and go to the tape. Number 18, Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3 has moments of being okay, and I like director Shane Black, but there's no way I'll ever get on board with people's love for this movie or the Mandarin twist. It's a frustrating film in a once-promising franchise. Speaking of... Number 17, Iron Man 2. Mickey Rourke doesn't work for me, but there are certain scenes that do. Just not enough to get this movie out of the basement of this list. It's a film that was rushed into production after the success of the first movie, and it shows. Number 16, The Incredible Hulk. A forgotten MCU movie, The Incredible Hulk has the benefit of being compared to 2003's Hulk and the disadvantage of coming out the same year as Iron Man. Even though Edward Norton is no longer the Hulk, Thunderbolt Ross is still played by William Hurt and made an appearance in Captain America Civil War. There is also an after credit scene where Tony Stark visits Ross at the end of The Incredible Hulk. Number 15, Thor The Dark World. It only picks up when Thor and Loki interact and ultimately bores the rest of the way through. Malkith is the most forgettable villain in the MCU and the lack of vibrant colors makes the movie dull. Number 14, Captain America The First Avenger. This establishes Chris Evans as a strong choice to play Captain America, but doesn't do enough to build the relationship between Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes. This is a classic case of, we had to get the origin story out of the way so we can make better movies in the future. To their credit, they did. Number 13, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. I enjoy everything about this movie, except the plot. It's very funny, but the plot. Damn that plot for being so essential to making a good movie. Number 12, Avengers Age of Ultron. There are scenes that I love in this movie, but ultimately it was quite a letdown. It had obvious studio interference and tried to pack too much into a two-hour, 22-minute movie. Number 11, Thor. This is a solid origin film with a lot of laughs, great casting with Chris Hemsworth as Thor, and Tom Hiddleston as Loki, who is still one of the MCU's best villains. Kenneth Branagh excels in the director's chair, and the Rainbow Bridge was gorgeous the first time I saw it. Number 10, Doctor Strange. I really like this film. It sparked new life into the MCU with a different kind of hero capable of things characters in the universe are not accustomed to. Benedict Cumberbatch was born to play the role and Tilda Swinton is excellent as always. Number 9. Ant-Man. Paul Rudd is the ideal casting for Ant-Man and add in Evangeline Lilly and Michael Douglas and you're set. Despite Edgar Wright leaving the project, Peyton Reed stepped in nicely to direct a fun film. Number 8. Spider-Man Homecoming. This is the best Spider-Man with the best Spider-Man to ever put on the suit, Tom Holland, leading the way. 
The comedy keeps you laughing throughout. Captain America's cameos are great, and Michael Keaton's Vulture is one of the best MCU villains. Number 7. Thor Ragnarok. This movie is so much fun. Probably the most entertaining of the MCU films. It has flaws, but the humor and action set pieces overshadow any of the negatives. Number 6. Guardians of the Galaxy. Throwing Chris Pratt into an MCU movie was one of the smartest things Marvel has ever done. Like Thor Ragnarok, Guardians of the Galaxy thrives on its humor, but comes together as a movie a little better to give it the slight edge. Number 5. The Avengers. The MCU's ability to bring all of its characters together for one film may be its crowning achievement, and one that the DC Universe has tried to emulate. It's no easy task, but Joss Whedon did it, making the MCU what it is today. Number 4. Iron Man. Speaking of crowning achievements, we don't have any of this without Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. This movie kicked off the universe and was the character fans came out to see for a really long time while Captain America, Thor, and Hulk got their footing. Us comic book movie fans will always be indebted to Iron Man. Number 3. Black Panther. This movie just came out a couple months ago, but the MCU once again managed to churn out a film that transcended the genre. Ryan Coogler is still batting a thousand after directing three feature-length films, and the acting talent is jaw-dropping. Number 2. Captain America Civil War. The Russo brothers followed up their Great Captain America sequel with a Great Captain America sequel. It's two great action set pieces at the airport and with Captain America Bucky and Iron Man fighting each other are arguably the best MCU has ever had. And two different sequences at that, as the airport battle relies on fun while the end fight gives us an emotional struggle among characters who love each other. And number one, Captain America the Winter Soldier. This was the fully realized potential of what Captain America and the Marvel Cinematic Universe can be. Six years after the release of Iron Man, the Russo brothers finally figured out a way to make another great solo film. By making a realistic spy movie with superheroes in it, Captain America the Winter Soldier provided a blueprint for how to make a good standalone superhero movie. Create a good story and weave superheroes into it. I truly believe that saved the Marvel Cinematic Universe and made it what it is today. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.